Welcome to season three of the ASCA Viewpoints podcast, the podcast where we talk about the student conduct profession in higher education. I'm Alexandra Hughes, your Viewpoints host. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the ASCA Viewpoints podcast. I am your host, Dr. Alexandra E. Hughes, and Happy New Year. I I can't believe it's a new year. It seems like it is December 30th. No, not 30th. I lied. December 58th of like... 2020, right? It doesn't seem like we're in 2021, but we are. We <laughs> we're here. So I hope that this uh, podcast finds you well wherever it is that you are. Uh, morning, night, afternoon, you name it. I hope that uh, you are just doing well and safe and healthy during these times. I am so excited to be back. I had to take a break. Um, take some time away. Uh, now I'm back and the show is back. We have so many things planned for 2021. Please make sure that you are following us on social media. It is ASCA podcast on everything. I now have made um, actually official like Instagram accounts and all that. If you haven't known, I even made an official Instagram account for me for like work. And that's going to be Dr. Underscore E Hughes. That's D-R underscore E Hughes. Uh, H-U-G-H-E-S for my name. So yeah, follow me. Like I literally just made it like two days ago. So I don't even have anything up yet, but you should follow me because things are going to be up. So I'm super excited. Um, I'm not going to hold up too much more of your time as far as an introduction. I really want to get into this amazing conversation that I had with my special guest on the show, uh, Stephanie Wright. So for those of you who have probably heard her name before, I definitely shouted out some of her work on on the on Twitter and on, I think on the show in the past. Um, and I'm so excited and so honored to be able to have her here on the show to talk about her experience with identities and some of the really hard things that we still have going on. I think that the reality of kind of where we are with just everything that's happening is that these conversations are happening. They can be uncomfortable, but I have found them to be so enriching and I, I mean, the growth that even I've had in, in having these conversations and listening to these conversations is just truly incredible. And so that, I hope, is what you take away. So without further ado, Stephanie Wright is a student-centered educational administrator who is committed to service, leadership, and excellence with over 16 years of experience in student affairs. She is regionally known as a dynamic speaker, presenter, and innovator in the areas of Greek affairs and student development, and her passion lies in reshaping campus cultures by developing and implementing hazing prevention education for students organizations and club sports. She works closely with academic affairs, off-campus housing, res life, fraternity and sorority life to address organizational misconduct, restore community standards, and set student organizations on a path to success. Beyond her many years of experience in Greek leadership, she has had extensive experience in student conduct and Title IX and Quite simply put, she is an advocate that cross collaborates uh, to create engaging learning experiences for students, faculty, and staff around ethics, multiculturalism, and leadership. She is actively involved in a multitude of professional organizations, and she has founded her own uh, annual Cultural Greek Leadership Conference uh, that centers on issues faced by Greek letter organizations, um, and founded her own company, which is SMW Services, in order to provide consultation and developmental programming to organizations and institutions. So she's done a lot. She's extremely passionate, extremely knowledgeable. Um, This conversation was one that even 
wow, like even, even I just had to sit there and learn some stuff from. So with that, I will go ahead and let you hear our conversation. And I hope that I can talk to you soon on the interwebs. Stephanie, Stephanie Wright, how are you doing? Welcome. I'm well. How are you, Dr. Hughes? <laughs> so weird hearing that. Like, I, you know, I, I'm, in, I'm in shock, like, like even still in shock of that. But I'm doing, I'm doing well. It's, you know, we're here. Um, yes. COVID, pandemic. Mm-hmm. That's a thing. Yeah. People have forgotten that, but it's a thing. Um, so many have forgotten that. Yeah. No, I, yeah. So many of our students have forgotten that it's a thing. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I recognize that every Monday morning when I enter into all my police reports. Mm. Yeah. I, I wish they would remember because, you know, I would like to go outside. I feel like the kid who's inside doing everything they're supposed to, but you can't go outside for recess because mm-hmm. people are not doing what right. they're supposed to do. I, I really want recess. Like <laughs> I want recess too. <laughs> This is, this is, this is not it. This is, mm-mm, it's not it. So outside of COVID, how are you doing? Outside of COVID, um, I'm, I'm doing all right. I'm, I'm thriving personally, I would say, aside from the stressors of, of school. But um, yeah, aside from that, I'm great. It just, you know, work is stressful, but that, that's connected to COVID. Yeah, that's, uh, that's true. COVID, conduct, COVID, conduct, and College. Oh, that's that sounds like a like a proposal. COVID conduct in college. Go ahead and submit that. Okay, I will. We'll we'll, we'll do it together. COVID right. conduct in college because this is not you know. If someone takes that idea, I'm coming for you. I just want to throw that out there. It's already coined right here. We got it. Okay. No one else. Okay, we're good. Okay. Well, how about this? So the people know who you are. Um, can you share a little bit about yourself? Only as much as you're comfortable sharing on a recorded okay. podcast, right? But just you know, how did you get to this role that you're in? What you do? A little bit about your background story. All that good stuff. Yeah. Um, so I have been in this role, well, at least at, at Rutgers for five years. I just celebrated my five-year anniversary, um, the other day. And I came into this role, um, after working in fraternity sorority life for five years prior, um, at a, another institution and, um, a good friend of mine who, uh, recently passed away, Alicia Lawrence, um, when this, my position was created, was like, Hey, Steph, like you would be so great for this, please apply. And I was like, no, but I did it anyway. <laughs> um, I did it anyway. And um, it, it worked out. It was a great fit and it allowed me to really uh, flex some of these skills that were limited at my previous institution. So doing some policy writing and um, being a little more developmental um, than I had in the past. Um, so I've been working in higher ed. I know I have a baby face, but I've been in higher ed for 16 years now um, in different capacities from student leadership and, and student activities financially. I've done a little bit of this and a little bit of that in preparation for whatever the next step is going to be. Um, outside of working at Rutgers, uh, I'm a small business owner. So I have my own LLC, SMW Services, uh, where I do a lot of consulting work, mainly with... Um, culturally-based fraternities and sororities, uh, that's really my passion. And it's important that they have support, um, which I know we'll dig into that a little bit more in the article. Um, I work a lot with culturally-based organizations, helping them with a hazing prevention, their policy development. Uh, I consult with uh, different uh, institutions on what their policies look like. And I, you know, Hazing prevention is kind of my thing, uh, just based on my own life experience. So I do a lot of uh, hazing prevention education as well. And lastly, people don't know this about me, really, because I haven't pushed it a lot, but I started a podcast over the summer. Um, season two will be coming out in December, a.k.a. after this, after my classes end this semester. Um, so season two, and maybe I'm rambling, will be coming back out. Um, so that's going to be exciting. Uh, so that that's pretty much that's it. It's all about stuff. 
Well, you know, you do a lot and you're in a lot of places. So I think that's just incredible. I don't think people understand the complexities of having a full-time job and, you know, having a business that you run and, you know, of having a podcast and being in school. Like there's so many things there. So I definitely, definitely appreciate, you know, really just what you're doing because it's a lot and it stretches you in a lot of different ways, but it's also such important work. And then it's your passion. So you love it, but you're tired. And then, oh yeah, in a pandemic. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep. that's the thing too, right? Um, well, okay. Well, outside of all of that, you also did something else. Uh, we have a, uh, an ASCA, a journal called like Reflections, right? And so you actually wrote this really powerful article um, and it was entitled The Complexity of Being a Black Conduct Officer. Mm-hmm. So we're going to get into that this episode because there's so many things that I think are really just powerful that you wrote as well as uh, it was, it just, it explained things so very well. And I think people can learn from that. So what just made you write that? We'll just start with that. I was tired. Um, I had spent enough time crying and being frustrated and like swinging at the air and I needed a release. Um, my, it's funny, uh, my associate vice chancellor had actually forwarded the email to me. I saw it and I deleted, I was like, I'm not writing anything. And so she forwarded it to me and I said, okay, this is a sign. I should, I should probably write something. Um, and as I began, it was such a release and I was hoping that what I was contributing would spark some thoughts in, in other people's minds that, said, you know, we need to look at how we're doing this and do it differently. And also, when we think about support, let's not just think about our students, but what are our staff members going through? I think so often um, the needs of staff are dismissed and we have a sole focus on our students. But if we're not well, we can't be there for our students. So I decided to just, um, you know, be as transparent as possible and, and just like throw me out there even though there was some risk connected to it um, to make that point and, and hoping that it hit home for some people. Well, I definitely think it did. I mean, I can't speak for everyone, but I know for me and obviously because I am a black conduct officer, it definitely, I resonated with a lot of it. Um, You know, you said something where you said I was to use my voice and reputation to shed light in the dark corners of the system. Mm -hmm. And I think that that in itself, right, like we could probably talk for hours and hours, right, just about the different Mm -hmm. pieces of the things that you said, but you really talked about finding your purpose, right, in this journey and looking at really yourself. Could you talk a little bit about that, right? Like finding your purpose and, and how you did that in this role as a student conduct administrator? Yeah. Um, I think, you know, finding my purpose, I've always just been on that journey and I've done that. I've been on that path for a while. Um, and I thought it was initially, one thing I didn't mention earlier is I founded a, a conference called the uh, Greek Leadership Conference, CGLC. And I thought that that was it. Like, all right, I'm, I'm creating this space for our students and I'm seeing at least 250 students um, a year that, that I'm supporting. And um, when this position came up, um, like even though I wanted to fight it, it, it was... I was called to it. And every time I say, you know, I'm going to job search, something pauses, right? It's like, okay, I'm, I'm not job searching. And it always happens where there's something else that comes up that says, Stephanie, if your hands wasn't on this, this would look different. And, um, and recognizing those in different cases. And I only talk about a couple of cases, but I experienced this so often. Um, I said, okay, I'm supposed to be here because there is a change that, I'm supposed to make at least within Rutgers, right? I don't know how far it stretches, um, but it, but that's it. And uh, it's been a painful journey to find that purpose, and it's a tiring journey, um, but it's what's been put on me. And so, the people who know me know I'm very spiritual, so I will always bring up like God and my calling and things like that, which can be annoying to some people, but that's who I am. Um, and and I think just. Uh, Wanting to be a person, I can remember going back to being a child and, and wanting to speak out for those who um, felt like they didn't have a voice, right? Like I'm, I'm the voice of the voiceless, if you will. Um, I've been doing that since I was probably about seven, eight years old. Um, so it's just who I am. So to step into this role where I get to 
um, go back and forth with, with people about why this is right, why this is wrong, and, and develop someone. Um, it's just a part of who I am. Right. Well, I think you bring up a good point. So for so many of us um, working in student conduct, we essentially get away from who we are in the sense of we hide a lot of parts. I think that it comes from a place of, you know, us ensuring that we are being fair and equitable and, you know, able to really just be neutral, right? In a lot of these situations, because that's what we really pride ourselves, uh, pride ourselves as, as conduct officers. And I think we do a really good job of, a job of that. But I also wonder how much better or how much more or how many more connections we can be making if instead of shying away from those identities, if we also just kind of lean into that, right? And lean into the things that we're feeling. And like you said before, like, look, I'm a really spiritual person. So how does that play into the things that I'm you know, navigating and the cases that I'm getting and everything else? And I think that's important, right? And especially now more than ever this year, 2020, outside of the pandemic, right? <laughs> there were so many other things that happened. You know, I think there was something that was said. Um, I think Don Lemon actually said it. He said there's two pandemics, right? One, there's COVID-19 and there's one on race. Yeah. And we saw this year a lot of stuff happening racially. Mm-hmm and being brought up. And so uh, I think there's so many times that even though, yes, people can physically see that I am black or you are black or or whatever that may look like, we still really try to kind of hide that identity in a sense and not let that be what comes out. But in your article, you are really talking about the fact that I had to let that come out. So could you talk a little bit more just about that and what, what that was like? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I found very quickly um, when I would see uh, students of color uh, come into my space to, for their conduct meeting, their, the sense of nervousness and, and more, more than the average student, right? And, and I was like, man, I need them to know, like, I'm feeling the same thing you're feeling. I'm going through it too, right? Just because I may be older, I have this title. Right. Like we are at the end of the day, we both walk out into that street. We're just seen as people of color that um, are targets. Right. Like we're targets for whatever it is, whether it's a verbal assault, a physical assault. You know, there's always that threat to our lives. And so I have I have made it my business to if I'm having those conversations, whatever the conduct conversation is, right, we're going to have that. We're going to we're going to deal with the behavioral issues. But afterwards, we're going to have a Stephanie and you conversation. And it, it might sound a little bit like young black men. Let me explain how you need to, to maneuver, um, you know, and, and for, our, for our, our parents of color who they want their students to, uh, to get that education so they can, they may be first gen um, and being able to say to those parents, I can relate, right? Like I'm first gen. I, my mother has an eighth grade education. My father has an associate's degree. I am, I'm their wildest dream, right? So I know what you are feeling um, because I went through that when I journey with my parents. Um, and so really trying to provide that comfort and having to show up in my blackness. I've had to show up in my queerness um, because how long do we have to fight for like, um, you know, our system, like if you use so that we can put in um, like students preferred names, right? Um, so that we're respecting them um, and the way in which they want to be addressed. And so in order to do that and for people to not look at me as like, oh, you just want to complain about something. No, let me let me explain this to you because it's, it's impacting our students because it's also impacting me. And so this is not me wanting to complain or I'm playing favorites because I like this particular student, but I've been where they are, where I've been unseen, unheard, and made to feel small. And so I now, in my positional power, have the ability to make sure that doesn't happen to the next generation. So I will do that, even if that means I'm going to take hits. But I know that they'll be all right. You know, right? It won't be the best situation, but it'll be better than what I had. And I think that also just goes back to like my purpose too, right? Um, so I just I have to show up 
and show out daily as who I am. And that's scary because when you are Stephanie, right? You show up as me, I show up, you know, I'll come into the conference and I have one on a men's suit and I'm rocking it better than some of the men. Just gonna throw that out there, right? <laughs> no. And, and so there's this, I'm looked at as a threat and I've had that experience. So my skin is a threat. My intelligence is a threat. My voice is a threat. Um, so I, I, I have no choice but to just show up and be unapologetic about who I am because you're going to hate me or dislike me or dismiss me regardless. So what do I have to lose? Right. <laughs> And you know what it's like to feel that. So you want to make sure that your students are not feeling that. And so that's where that advocacy work comes from in so many ways. Um, How do you manage that when it comes to, say, the opposite, where there's cases in which there is an attack on an identity, such as someone saying, a student saying the N-word, the student saying something that is attacking, you know, essentially, even though it's another student, something that would be a part of your identity. Talk us through the examining of that from both a, a student perspective and a staff perspective because I, and I'm, and I'm trying to make that distinguish it because I think it's so important. There is the student side of making sure that we're having this conversation or whatever else, but what is that like being the staff member in the office where maybe the N word was used, which is such a deplorable, the one of the, if not the worst deplorable hated word, right? Mm. And now you have to have an educational conversation what does that look like? It is probably one of the hardest things for me to do because I'm reading that report and I'm hurt. Um, it starts with hurt uh, because I have to read that. And then it starts with fear because then I have to make sure that when I'm addressing this behavior, um, I have, I have to take my feelings out of it. One of my, one of my saying is facts over feelings. So I have to remove my feelings from it and focus on what, what are the facts so that I can have that conversation. And it's, it's like swallowing, like something so thick and painful, right? It's hard to have that conversation. Um, but we're forced to, to swallow that and continue to move forward. Um, you know, when I hear from the student who, that, that's been violated, uh, our, our complaint party, if you will, um, all I want to do is just like cry and hold them and say like, I know it's going to be okay, but I can't do that. I just have to sit there and just order the facts, what happened, um, and examine that, that information. And it's, it's abusive. Um, so I also feel like a victim in that space, but I don't get to file a report. Um, and so I have to, I have to, and then on top of that, after you complete that case, now I have to go justify whatever conversation that I've just had. I have to go justify, you know, you know, write our rationale and, and the outcome. And I have to repeat those conversations. And so now I'm being harmed on top of the harm that I've, I've already experienced. And um, there's times when you feel numb as a staff member. Um, people are like, well, we should be used to this. But then there's times where you, I, I shut down. And, you know, people are like, well, Stephanie, why aren't you talking? Why aren't you bubbly? Because I just read three, four reports in one day with the N-word being used and the food is okay. And now I have to prepare to meet with this student next week and tell them why it's not when they should already know. Um, and wondering, like, when do we as an institution, we put so much information out about everything else, but when do we start to, when can I get a don't say the N-word campaign? Right. <laughs> when can I get that? I will look, be the first person with you to to ooh, to push that. Yeah. You said something. You said fear. And I really want to kind of um, expand upon that a little bit, because 
you know, I think that there's a level of fear that student conduct officers that maybe people think that we should have that we don't because it's like, oh, like we we deal with the craziest stuff at an institution period. And it's so funny because as conduct officers, we often, you know, talk or text among ourselves and we're like, oh yeah, this happened or this happened and bombs and this and that. And to us, it's like a Tuesday, right? Yeah. And other people on campus are like, oh my God, like, you know, and we're like, oh yeah, like, I guess, I guess that's fine. Right. So I think there's a level of like fear or disassociation that we don't have just because for some reason we're just in this work. We understand what it is. I don't know if that's good or bad or whatever, but that's just, I mean, you know, it's there. It's kind of like a trend, right? Like that's why we love conference so much. And that's why we're with people that understand that. But I want to look at fear from a different lens and the lens of when you read a report and you say fear, when you read that someone is using the N-word or the fear of meeting with, not with both parties, the student that said it and the student that received it, right? The victim and the respondent or the complainant and the respondent, whatever our processes call that. That is a, that, that's, that's hard. And I don't think that people understand that there is a level of fear fear for safety, fear for protection, because if the respondent used the N-word and depending on the context in which it was used and knowing that I hold the identity of that, there's almost a level of fear that I have about what, how is this going to turn out or what are you going to say to me? Yes. Yes. And are you bringing a support person with you? And now am I going to be in a space where I have the ability to attack from two angles, right? Because if I'm in my office and it's just me and you, I'm okay. But (laughs) but if I'm if there's if there's somebody else, what does that look like? Are you gonna walk into that space and are you gonna start calling me the N-word? And then I have to make a decision in that space, okay, how do I handle this? Do I become Stephanie free um education, right? (laughs) Or or do I maintain this professionalism and swallow that? And I think, you know, for me at this point, I can't swallow it anymore. And that's part of the reason why I wrote, you know, wrote the article because I'm tired of wondering, am I next? In a space where I should be safe. I should be safe on my, my university's campus. I should be safe within my office. Even though we're virtual, I should be safe in this virtual space. And I don't always feel that way. Um, and who shows up for me? Mm-hmm. And when I, what, you know, when I think about that student who reported it, right, they want to feel safe too. And, all, and I'm like, I, I want you to feel safe too, but there's only so much I can do. And I, the university is not giving me or you the resources to make sure you feel safe. It doesn't seem like a priority in Right. And I don't think that other people think about that. And you could use that in multiple different identities, right? Um, like you talked about being queer. Like, what does that mean if you're reading a report and someone said something that is disrespectful? Like, like again, it's that same thing, right? And yeah. so I think that there a lot of times people are not thinking about that. Um, and they have the privilege to not think about that, right? Mm-hmm. And even the point that you said about like, am I safe? How many times are you wondering that, right? Like when you, you know, from your outside and when I'm walking across the street, when I'm going into a store, when I'm going into Walmart, when I'm doing, you know, name, name a situation when I get pulled over, whatever that may be, but also even, and I don't think that people recognize this from a higher educational standpoint, but as a higher education professional, am I safe in this space? Especially knowing that I have one of the, and I, I don't care what anyone says. I think we we have some of the hardest jobs at an institution Um, in the conversations that we have and the things that we talk about. And it's so hard. You said in your article um, that you uh, participate in the run, right? The 2.23 mile run after this was what in May of 2020 um, after the death of Ahmaud Arbery, right? And how your mother had texted you saying, please be safe. Yeah. Yeah. How do you feel like when you read that? Um, man, even like you've mentioned that I feel a little emotional right now. Um, because that's, that's every time I go out, she's worried, you know, um, 
my brother lives in New York, and so she's always, you know, the moment something happens in the news, she, she's worried. Um, and she knows, you know, the way in which I present could be problematic for people. Um, and so there's always this fear that she's going to get that call, like, her baby, I'm it, I'm the baby, that, that, that something's going to happen to me. She also knows my attitude. So, um, yeah, it's it's hard. I actually, I've read the article to my mom. Um, and she became emotional. So it was just a, a whole moment that we had. And, uh, and for me, the moment I open my door, I'm I'm afraid. Um, I when I go for my runs, like I usually go for a walk or a run or whatever. But I now make sure to keep the exact same trail and, and wave to all of the neighbors so they don't feel like I'm a threat. And I just I shouldn't have to have to do that. Um, so my my daily waking life, I'm afraid. I get in the car to go to work, I'm afraid. I literally went to my office to pick up my second monitor, and I was afraid of walking out of my office with the monitor. Like, what what are they going to say? Um, am I going to be pulled over? You know, am I going to be stopped for like stealing the monitor that I see literally just handed me? Um, because for some reason, my my phone is left. Um, and when it becomes open season on Black folks, right, and we as Black people, we recognize, oh, it's open season on us. Um, everything that we do, um, there's a level of fear. And, you know, it, like you said earlier, it's a privilege to not have to think about that. And it holds up space in your brain, right? Like, whereas you could be thinking about something else um, or you could be, I mean, <laughs> I got to a point where running outside for me was actually more stressful running outside than it was supposed to be like the stress relief, right? Or even the fact that I was willing to pay more to go to a gym to run inside, right? Versus um, running outside. People often say things like, well, you shouldn't keep the same, uh, you know, routine or you shouldn't keep the same um, trail because if someone was going to like kidnap you or like watch you or doing something, then they would know that every day at 8 a.m., you know, you go through this neighborhood. But I think even that, the flip side is, it's almost like, so if I have to choose between running through the neighborhood and you knowing that at 8 a.m. I run and that's when you're, if you're going to snatch me, you're going to snatch me, that way that happens. I'll choose that over me switching the trail, switching the time, and then people not knowing that I live here, I run here, that way you don't feel threatened. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and you have to think about everything, right? Like, what kind of what color are my clothes? Because I need to be able to justify. Like I literally I have white running sneakers and I usually have on bright shorts. I was like, I wouldn't rob somebody in these bright clothes. Like that's my justification. The fact that I have to think of what my story is before I can just go live my life, it's exhausting. And then I have to walk into to work and deal with more things that are exhausting. You know, these these types of conversations that um, no one else wants to have or willing to have. So how do you, let's switch this up a little bit. How do you um, make sure that your personal biases and things are coming into place when it comes to um, the investigations that we do? You know, as you know, I've done trainings for ASCA, different things when it comes to implicit bias and understanding. And a lot of times it's getting people to understand that a student is dealing with the things that you and I are talking about, right? But I think it's also good for us to talk about like the flip side to that, right? Like how do you go ahead and put those feelings to the back, as you talked about, and look at the facts of these particular situations? Um, I, I think I, it's weird, but I've been able to kind of step outside of those identities in that moment. Um, and I don't know how I mentally do it. I haven't been able to figure it out, but the minute that I'm like, okay, the student is entering my room, entering my office, or entering, you know, the, I've taken out of the waiting room, then I'm not black. I'm not queer. I'm just, I'm just here fat gathering. And so I learned to be really great at just doing that. And prior to the meeting, I can have my emotions. After the meeting, I can go scream. I can do whatever it is I need to do. But when I come back to the table to review, I remind myself that is a feeling. And it's, it's almost become like my mantra. 
to get me through doing the work that I do so that I can ensure that I am being fair and equitable across the board for all of my students. I just want to look at the behavior. And when I speak to our grad students, it's the same thing that I say to them. All you are looking at what's in black and white. What's the concrete information that you have in front of you to make your decision? Remove your feelings. They don't matter. Um, and and it, it hurts to say that, but if we're going to do this right, fair, and just, you have to do that. Right. And it's not always easy. No, it isn't. And I, and I think that it's important for us to say that and put that out there, all of us, right? Because we're, we're all human beings. And so we feel things and we have our emotions and whatever that may look like, but definitely the training to, to do this is incredible. So let's talk a little bit about organizations, right? Mm. Um, because you are doing this in your business all of the time and you've really been able to create a successful business looking at like cultural organizations. And like you talked about, about hazing and these different things. So how are you able to really combine that of like the work that you do right in conduct with these organizations and really ensuring that you are really achieving student success? Yeah. Um, you know, when I work with, when I work with a national organization, whether I'm just dealing with their chapter or them overall, um, I think the benefit is that I get to look at both sides as being brief. Um, and having had my own experiences that, you know, what I went through, what I put through, right, I can, I can relate. Um, but being on the other side of it, the risk management piece, um, I can say, okay, I can see the problems there. And so I think I've become like that perfect balance for them of like, I get it. And I also under, understand some of the cultural significance, but we need to speak this to make sure it's aligned here. And um, they've been able to, the group that I've worked with have been able to really appreciate that. Um, what they also appreciate is that sometimes we speak in language to these, to these organizations that they don't understand. So if we're starting to think about culture-based organizations, who is, they're volunteer-based, which is not, there's no executive director getting paid some salary, right? You are speaking to them at this level and they're like, I have no clue, but since you're the, you're the professional here. Okay, if you say I have to do this, I'm going to do it. And there's no real pushback. And so because I understand the language, I get to come in and translate for them and help them to negotiate. Um, so I know that sometimes it's bad. It's like, how are you going to get your own people, right? But at the same time, those are still my people. So I have to turn off my, I am a conduct administrator, you know, hat. And I'm, I'm an advocate for our culture-based organization and, and have that conversation. Um, and so really, I think I just been really great at being able to mesh those two worlds and be the translator. And then for some our professional, they're like, I don't understand why they need to do this. Because I am of that world, I can say, well, this is where this comes um, I like so, to look at it like a language, right? And I love what you said. I actually, I, I think it's great. How many times are we... Uh, and let's put it into terms that people can understand. How many times are we taking our student codes of conduct, right? That are in, you know, a form of legalese, as you can call it, and yeah. breaking it down to get students to understand, okay, yeah. like, because they're saying, well, what do you mean? I didn't, I didn't do that. And I'm like, well, you did. Let me show you how, how you did it, what it was, et cetera, et cetera. And they're like, oh, okay, that makes sense. And so I think what you're doing is actually perfect and in alignment with what we need because there is, it's, it's two different languages. And also depending upon um, what Greek organization, right, you were a part of, what council you were a part of, there's different terminologies that are used to essentially say the same thing, right? Like new member, you know, all those different yeah. things change, right? Yeah. And so even being able to understand that language is significant when you're dealing with just like conduct issues, right? Yeah. And then vice versa, student rights and responsibilities, that's what we call, you know, our office. And I know that everyone has a different name, same thing, yeah. but we're telling people they have 
the responsibility to know my code of student conduct, but you have rights as well. And so that's where that advocacy work is so important. And I think what you're doing is incredible because you are able to mesh that. You are able to bridge that and be a translator and get them students to understand the process and what's going on, as well as professionals to understand, you know, this is what the student needs and this is why it's important. And I think it also goes to show you the importance of understanding culture, right? And having a sense of cultural humility to recognize that there's going to be so many different things, even in Greek life, that maybe you weren't, maybe you were Greek, but you never experienced, right? Um, A particular organization's, you know, cultural, right? Like standards and what they do. And that's important. Yeah. And, you know, I, to be transparent, I, I think a lot of our language, especially when it comes to student organizations, have been dictated um, by other groups. And for some reason, we as professionals, we just go along with, like, oh, okay, they said it. And then there comes in the other room, right? And so now you're trying to make some type of space for these other groups that were never considered from the beginning. Um, and so that's, that's the other place where I get to insert myself and say, well, let me tell you how you're wrong, University X, Y, and Z, um, because all of this is crafted perfectly for a Panhellenic group, perfect for an IFC group, but you forgot about NMDC, NPHC, you know, NAPIs, NAPO, you forgot about all of those groups, um, and that you expect them to assimilate um, and go along with it or get off of your campus. And so when universities talk about their commitment to diversity and, and equity and inclusion, are your policies equitable and inclusive? And if they're not, friend, let's 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 go back to the table and rewrite those and start including the people that you continue to recruit that don't really make space for. Mm-hmm. That's so true. Our, I go back to what you said. Are our policies equitable? Because the language in which a lot of policies were written at institutions. It's so low from long ago, right? And so our times have changed. And so what does that mean, right? And then even things uh, like zero tolerance policies. Everyone knows I do not like zero tolerance policies. I've never liked them. I purposely advocate against them. And our institution has one. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I don't like this, right? Um, but I, I think that in itself is so important. And you you said in your in your article, like, are you part of the problem or part of the solution? Yeah. And I think people need to think about that. So you ask yourself a question in that article. You say, "Am I complicit? Mm-hmm. Are you complicit?" I want to ask you on the show. Ooh, you know, I think there have been times um, that I have been um, because I was concerned about the perception mm-hmm. um, that, you know, I went through three years um, under particular leadership that often made me question um, my decision making because I, and I wrote in an article that I have a soft spot for black men. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, when you hit me with things like that, now I'm questioning myself and questioning my professionalism. Um, and so now I'm, I'm going to like, I'm going to do it different. I'm going to go harder. So I think there have been times where I've definitely been complicit and and I've upheld um, things that I don't actually believe in because I didn't want to be viewed a particular way. That's powerful. And I think that's so important, right? So as a Black conduct officer, how many times are we harder on those students of color or those Black Mm -hmm. students, right? Because we want to make sure that we are not being seen as partial or biased in a particular way because we know that there's a different lens, right? Or how many times are we upholding sanctions and things that we know? And I we're being honest, me too. I can be transparent. There have been times in the past, right, where I'm looking at things and I've upheld decisions that I'm not okay with, right? And I think there's, you know, that that's really hard, right? Really, really hard, especially when you recognize that it's the institutional system itself that's making, uh, you know, some type of decision or sanction or whatever that is. And it's not, it doesn't have the same impact. Right. And that's really hard. It is. And as a black conduct officer, it's another layer or another level. You know, and I'm I'm just reminded that, you know, higher education wasn't initially designed to receive us. 
So we are going to continue to, you know, have to fight, you know, break down these barriers and, and have these fights because we're here now. Um, so we shouldn't have to adapt to you. Your citizens should adapt to our present. And we haven't gotten there as, as a profession. We haven't. Mm-mm. You said something. You said stop apologizing verbally while maintaining the same behaviors. Mm-hmm. Where do you see that? Do you see that in the sense of institutions that are, you know, putting on trainings or willing to bring in someone for trainings, but then not changing what they're doing? Mm-hmm. I think it's, I think it's a combination of things, right? So if, if we take it individually, we have folks in leadership, or even like you know, your, your counterpart who will be like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry this happened to you or it happened to whomever. Um, but then they just continue with the, with the same antics and they're not actually trying to help make change. We have um, institutions that are consistently putting out climate surveys and, and trying to take a poll and um, everything that they're doing is really performative, right? So, oh, we're going we're gonna to create these affinity spaces or we're going to create this conference, et cetera, et cetera. And then it's like, check, we did that. We're inclusive, right? Um, or we're bringing in the speaker and we're going to devote two hours to um, all this DEI education and look at us. We're done. We are unified. And no, that is not it. Mm-hmm. That is not it. Or we've done some RJ training, so we're set. Stop performance. Mm-hmm. Like, either we're going to be invested in this work or we're not. So you need to make a decision, and if you don't want to make the change, or you are indecisive, then you need to move on. Mm-hmm. This is not the field. Well, we have to be there and show up for our students, and that's all of our students. And so we all, I think, as higher education professionals, have to recognize that and be willing to advocate for all of our students. Mm -hmm. And so that means that we need to understand the identities of our students, understand the historical implications of those identities for our students and make sure that we are ensuring their success by being able to really just acknowledge all of those things. And it's hard. It is. It's so hard. And I get that. But it's harder, I think, to have those identities and to not feel seen, right? To not feel heard um, and to feel that you're in a process that's not that there's, there's no winning, whatever it is. Right. And I don't think that's something that people recognize sometimes, even with our processes, it's like, you know, I've, I've met with those students who genuinely walk in and they feel like it does whatever you're going to do, because I know that I can't, I can't win. You're not going to believe what I said. I'll never forget. I had a student who said, who told me just thank you for listening. And this was actually just a month ago. There was a situation that happened and he just said, Dr. Hughes, like, I just appreciate you. I, I just listening to me. I knew, I just knew that no one was going to even listen to me. Um, and he admitted exactly, this is what I did. This is what I didn't do. This is what he said. Nope, I did this. I did X, Y, Z. I did not do A, B, or C, but I did X, Y, and Z. And I'm going to be honest and I'm going to tell you. And I said, okay, now we can talk about that. But I think just knowing that there's students that are so scared that they're just not even going to be heard or listened yeah. to, that's troubling. Yeah. Because, you know, that's what they're accustomed to outside of higher education. And we just, higher education just mimic what's happening outside of, in, in the world. And so what makes the conduct office any different than going to the police station? Or going to court where you know no one's going to believe you, you're not going to be heard. So what's the point? And so it's so important that we do. We listen to our students and we let them know when they enter that space immediately. Like I'm here to listen. This is the space that you will be heard. I'm not making decisions without hearing your voice, having your voice in the space. And those are conversations I have all the time. And there's sometimes I ask students, they're like, "Well, that's right. I need to go to court." And so my attorney said you know, not to say anything. Okay, when's your court date? Because I refuse to finish this without your voice in the space. Now, if you decide you just don't want to be involved, that's different. But knowing you want to be heard, you want to speak, I want to hear you. So um, I think we have to we have to be intentional about making sure our students know that we, we want to hear their voice. 
um, and that we're listening, right? And actively listening, not just, you know, performing. Right. Um, but, but taking those and really engaging in the conversation about their behavior and their future. And I don't know, I don't know if we're doing it. Right, right. Well, we need to. Well, I, you know, I really encourage people to read your article. I really want them to sit down because it is really impactful. And I think a lot of people can learn from it. Right. And, you know, I would encourage supervisors to read it because I think there are a lot of things that you put in there that maybe some people they're supervising are too afraid to say. Right. And um, it's it's just I, everyone needs to. So if you haven't read it, please do. Um, Stephanie, is there anything that we have not talked about or anything that we didn't say that you want to make sure that people that people know? Um, I think I, I'm going to like par- just paraphrase myself and how I close out the article about, um, you know, speaking our truth and not being afraid to um, speak our minds. And I know that Sometimes being that outspoken person can put you in situations where you don't you don't get the interview, you don't get the job, you don't get the promotion. I know especially for folks of color, that could be a fear of ours because we have you know we're ambitious folks, despite what some politicians may, may say. Um, and we have as much as we are advocating for ourselves to be heard, we need to advocate for ourselves to be heard too, and not be afraid to stand up for ourselves. And you know for um, the other folks in, in the field listen, learn, and unlearn. And um, if we can, can continue on that path, I think we can put higher education in a different space. Um, but right now, we're failing. So we need to do better. I love it. I love it. Well, is there anything that you would share with the listeners? Um, just, you know, what you're doing in COVID to, to keep it together, whether that's a book, a podcast, a song, <laughs> a recipe. I, is there anything that you're just doing that you would encourage people to look into? You know, I've really gotten more into mindful meditation. Um, that has really been helpful. Um, I have an amazing workout routine that I do a couple times a week. So, you know, next okay, time we need to share this. We're back. We're back in person. Like, you know what? It was just really simple. I turned my office into like my off. My second room was supposed to be a guest room. is now an office slash gym slash studio. Fair. Um, so, um, yeah, really simple. Like tension bands and, um, and some free weights and some ab work, man. At next conference, I'm going to be a totally different, different Stephanie. Right? So, um, that that's it. I haven't been cooking a lot. Me with Zoto for the first time, so that was fun. Um, but yeah, I'm a little chef. I, I see you just do many things, like just all the talents. Okay, I, I'm a creative person, and I think that sitting in COVID has allowed me to just be here and, and try try everything. So right. um, I, I think I think right now, while we're slowed down, all those things you can continue to put on the back burner and say I'll get to it. There's no time like the present to get to it. So I'm doing it all. I did this, this podcasting December 15th, season two. Maybe I'm wearing one. will be dropping um, my website. You know, every everything that I put on the back burner, I've been um, making come come to life. So I okay. the same. Well, what we'll do for people is I'll put into the show notes um, your website, your podcast, everything, so people can get more of you because I know they're going to want more of you. Um, and that way, it's just an easy like link. You know, click, click here, click, click there. That way, it's, that way, it's just easier. Your social media, everything, so that way they can just connect with you. Um, they can have that. So everyone, please just look at the show notes. And with that, Stephanie, thank you so much for being on our show. We appreciate yeah. you, and we hope to see you soon. Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Dr. This episode was produced, edited, and hosted by Alexandra Hughes. That's me. If you're enjoying the podcast, we ask that you like, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps others discover us and become more visible to our podcasting community. If you have suggestions for future guests or would like to be featured on the podcast yourself, feel free to reach out to us by email at ASCAPodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at ASCAPodcast. If you'd like to connect with me on Twitter, you can find me at Alexandra's View. Talk to us. We talk back.